Well, good morning, church. How y'all doing? My name is Andrew, and I'm one of the pastors here on staff. Let me invite you up front to go ahead and grab your Bibles now, and you're going to jump to the book of Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5. And if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, but you'd like one, one of our ushers would be happy to bring you one. Just simply throw your hand up in the air, indicating that you would like a Bible. And these Bibles are yours to have and to keep, so take it home with you. Make sure you, uh, you bring it back with you next week. We're starting a brand new series today entitled This Christmas, and it is a culmination of a lot of thoughts and ideas surrounding Christmas, that every year we tend to go through the same thing over and over again, that we can go through the monotonous routine and lose focus or lose sight of why we do what we do. For instance, Christmas lights. I really hadn't given much thought to why we hang Christmas lights other than Stacy said, I'd like you to hang Christmas lights. And by I'd like you to hang Christmas lights, she meant you're going to hang Christmas lights. In 1882, a good friend of Thomas Edison named Edward Johnson was the first one to ever illuminate a Christmas tree. He took a strand of 80 lights and colored some white, some red, and some blue. He elevated his Christmas tree up on a rotating stand that would give a 360 degree rotation every 10 seconds. He wired these lights into the tree and he set it right in front of his window so that all the passerbyers would walk by either on their way to work or from work and would take notice. They would recognize that this was brilliant. This was unique. It was something new. And that's exactly what happened. It drew national attention. News media from all over the country came in to see this spectacle for themselves and they wrote about it that this guy was a, a mysterious magician, that this was a fairy tale, that it was a masterpiece. It drew a lot of attention. And since 1882, Christmas lights have become a global phenomenon. It literally has impacted the world around us. And every year, countless lights sold for countless dollars will be put up countless times in countless houses all over the country. I just read that this year alone it is estimated that there will be 1,500 injuries incurred while hanging Christmas lights. I want my wife to know how much I love her. It's going to cost me. We were driving around town a few days ago and admiring the lights that were already up, that were already out, that were already being put up. And we have our favorites. I'm not going to tell you who they are, but we have some favorites in town. And we drive by and the kids love them. There's... Uh, specific neighborhoods, I think they all get together and decide that every house is going to be decorated. And you drive through the neighborhood and it's brilliant, these displays. And as we drive through, I didn't realize then what I was doing. But what I was doing was setting myself up to have to hang lights myself. And Stacy began to ask, hey, can we hang up lights? I was like, hey, can we hang up lights? Hey, when are you going to hang up lights? And this last week, she said to me on Monday morning as I was getting ready to leave for the office, she said, hey, Andrew, I, I just want to let you know that um, I-, I-, I appreciate that you're willing to hang lights. If you don't do it by Wednesday at 12 o'clock, I'm going to do it myself. And I thought, oh, oh, really? <laughs> Game on, lady. <laughs> and so I was sick Monday and Tuesday and got a little bit of, uh, a, little bit of a-, a window that opened up for me. So by Thursday, though, she said, you're well enough to get up on that ladder, get going. 
And so we have a house where I wanted to hang lights around the, the I didn't want to hang lights, but I did, I, around the gutters. And I employed the help of a friend of mine here at church. And uh, we got up on the, he got up on the ladder and I stayed down below and I fed him the lights as we put them up on top of the roof and the eaves and things like that. And we got down and as we plugged the lights in and turned them on, uh, something, two things interesting happened. One is immediately... I asked my wife, Stacy, and you could just see the, the Christmas lights weren't the only thing growing. She glowing. She was glowing. She was excited. And I said to her, Stacy, why, why are you so insistent on hanging Christmas lights? And she said emphatically, because lights matter. I thought, okay, that, that's all, if, that, that makes sense to me. It matters to you, then it matters to me. That's good. We'll go with that. As we were standing in the front yard, a woman drove by in her car, and she took the time to stop roll down her window and compliment us on the lights, how, how nicely uh, done they were and, and how great they looked. And so that was just an example of lights. When you put a lot of energy and effort and intention into hanging them, how they draw attention and, and they uh, please others, that it can, it can create memories and nostalgia in people. And, and it, uh, people just enjoy those things. Today we're kicking off this brand new series with a, with a message that I'm entitling, Because Lights Matter. We're going to look at a story in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Well, I'll get to that here in just a minute. But Jesus is going to tell the disciples that they are the light of the world. And you're going to learn throughout this time together during this talk that lights matter. Jesus in John 8 says that he's the light of the world because lights matter. And so this year, my challenge now and at the end is going to be that we don't simply look at lights the same way that we always have going through the motions, but that we stop to consider why lights matter and what that means to us. What I want to do is I'm going to read through this in its entirety, Matthew 5, 14 through 16, we're going to stop and pray, and then we're going to go back and we're going to draw some reflections from it. If you want, you can read along with me, Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16. You are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. Heavenly Father, I pray now that your words would wash over us. I pray that you would come, Holy Spirit, and meet us where we're at, encounter us. Father, I pray that you would illuminate our minds, that you would change our hearts, and that as we encounter your word, none of us would leave here the same as we did when we came in, but that we would leave affected and challenged and changed because of what we're about to read together, the power, the authority, the inerrancy, the beauty of your word. Now may the words of my heart, uh, my mouth, and the words of our hearts, and the meditations of our hearts be holy to you, Lord, I pray. Amen. I want to go back through this, and we're going to spend some time investigating some of these words. Because when you look at words at times in the original language, it changes some of the context. This is Jesus' first sermon ever given. This is recognized by both Christians and non-Christians alike as the most profound and impactful message, sermon, talk, or teaching that has ever been given. It has had the most impact over the longest period of time. Jesus begins by climbing the mountainside with his disciples and he sat there with his new disciples that he had just called, these young men. This was not uncommon for a rabbi and his 
pupils or his disciples where he would sit and his pupils would sit at his feet. And there they would lean into the teachings of the rabbi and they would listen intently to the instructions of the rabbi. And they would also watch the motions as a mime would to an individual that they were mimicking so that they could in turn put into place the very actions for which they were seen coming from their teacher. Jesus sits on this mountainside with his disciples. And we know from reading prior to this in Matthew chapter 4, the back end of Matthew 4, that a large crowd has begun to follow Jesus. As Jesus is teaching from a mountainside, it is likely because it has created a bowl-like atmosphere and that when strong winds come across, it acts as a natural amphitheater that would carry Jesus' voice. We can imagine that there are a lot of people in attendance and a lot of different types of people because if you read in Matthew 4, preceding the Sermon on the Mount, what we are going to read together today, it says that people all over Galilee and Jerusalem, as well as Decapolis, Deca, or the 10 non-Jewish or the 10 Gentile communities on the other side of the, 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 the Sea of Galilee, had gathered and throughout the region... What this means then when you consider the regions that are named and in place is that there's a conglomerate of individuals. There's a collection of types of personalities and people. Faith backgrounds, family backgrounds, nationality backgrounds. Uh, There's a whole lot of people. There are going to be some who are followers, devout followers of God and others who have multiple gods that they worship or little G-gods, deities that they surrender their life to. They're all sitting because of this interest that they have in Jesus, this common interest that they have in what he is saying. Some are interested in what he's saying because of the effects that it may have on their life, and others are interested in what he's saying because of the effects that it may have on others' lives and the challenge in the face of religion. So as Jesus sits down, he begins the Sermon on the Mount with a list of characteristics and qualities and traits of a believer. He says, blessed are you, for you will. Blessed are you, When you hunger and thirst for righteousness, for you will be filled. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will receive peace. He goes on to talk about the characteristics, the qualities, and the traits of Christians, these disciples, of what they will have, and the byproduct or the effects of those character traits. And then, from there, he transitions into some allegorical statements. He starts talking about salt, that you are the salt of the earth. And he paints this brilliant word picture as Jesus is so skilled at doing. In fact, better than 50% of what Jesus teaches is in allegories. It's in parables. These stories that consider context and culture that are used to, to draw illustrations out so that we can better understand and apply the word of God to our lives. So when he says, you are the salt of the earth, they recognize the, the reasons that they have salt, the purpose of salt, the effects of salt, both good and bad. From there keeping with the same line of thought, he introduces this new imagery, which is what we read moments ago, which is what we're going to discuss over the next few minutes together today. He says, you are. That word you, in the original language, is humorous. And it literally means you alone. What this does then is this places a directive in each one of their lives. That he is talking about them as individuals. This is not a plural statement. He's not saying y'all or you all or you are all going to. He says 
you, as in individual, singular, you alone. This message is for you. It may be being given to a broader body, but I want you to understand it is as though I am speaking to each one of you individually by name, as though we were sitting across from a meal table together exchanging this conversation. So when he uses this word humorous, They lean in because they don't want to miss it. Jesus is talking to them specifically. Have you ever been in a service, if you've been a part of church any length of time, and regardless of what the pastor was talking about, it felt like he was talking right at you? This is one of those moments where Jesus says, you alone. And then he uses a word that is important that we understand. He uses the word are. This is an active imperative. It is present tense. It is taking place right there. Jesus is saying, I'm talking to you and it matters now. This isn't a hyperbole. This isn't some allegory that I want to teach for you to apply to future earnings or future understandings or future lessons that will be taught But that in this moment, this is going to be important here in just a moment as we learn, because Jesus doesn't have them go through a litany list of things that they have to do in order to begin to live the life that God's called them to live. In other words, these disciples have dedicated themselves to Jesus, and so now in that moment, they have a responsibility. He's saying, you alone are the light of the world. The only time... That light is mentioned is when darkness is present. That's the only reason for light. Now there's a lot of things that light does. We're going to learn today that light exposes darkness. We're going to learn today that light reveals truth. That it captures truth. That it radiates. That it draws attention. But when Jesus says you are the light of the world. He must then be talking about a darkness. Because there's no reason to talk about light if there is not an inference to darkness. There are at least two types of darkness that Jesus is concerned with that we'll learn throughout the rest of the Sermon on the Mount as he's talking to the disciples. The first form of darkness is a physical darkness. It is a darkness that is covered, the sun covered by by, by day or by night with the moon and it changes the effects. And there's a physical darkness. It has an effect on us. It changes the way we view things. It changes the way we see things. It changes the way we do things. The other is a spiritual darkness. And this is interesting because consider Jesus' audience and the fact that there are religious elite there. So when he says that there is spiritual darkness, he is addressing religion as well. So now he's talking to these disciples who are looking out among the crowd, and Jesus says, you alone are active imperative. Now, here, important for this moment, as such, for such a time as this, the light of the world. And then Jesus says, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. I love this because, to me, I envision Jesus, and it's very possible, in fact, it's most, most likely probable, that as Jesus is sitting upon this mountainside, they have a, a larger panoramic, panoramic view of the, 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 the community around them, the, 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 the topography of what's going on around them. When I was putting up Christmas lights this last week, I got up on the ladder and got up on my roof, and I was helping my friend 
move these lights around and adjust some things, and we had got it all set up, but then I'm a little OCD about certain things, and I never thought I would be about Christmas lights, but we had two different brands, and it just didn't look right to me, so I got up on the roof, and my wife said, oh, let's just find me, and I said, you wanted the lights, let me do it, and so I got up there, and we started switching these things out, and as the sun was setting, I looked out over the Missouri Valley. From on top of my roof, you can see the valley really clearly. And I took a picture of the valley. You see, I don't always remember that there's a, something bigger because when I'm on ground level, I, I, my vision is impeded with the trees that are in front of me and the houses that are in front of me. So I don't recognize really what else is out there beyond what's in front of me in the moment. I become myopic. I think we're all guilty of this. We become myopic in that we only focus on what's in front of us in the moment. And that changes our approach to our faith. It really does. We'll learn that here in just a moment. But as I took a picture, I realized two things. Number one, that the valley was beautiful and it was awesome setting. And number two, I had better get down quick, fast, and in a hurry before I fell down in the dark. Jesus says, you are the light of the world, like a, hill, a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. It's likely that Jesus, as he's sitting on this mountainside, is pointing to a, a, an actual illustration. He's saying, look over there, guys. You see that city? That city is elevated up on a hilltop. And by day, it can be seen by everybody because it's elevated. That regardless of where you're at in the valley, you can just look up and you'll recognize that there's an inhabitant, that there are homes, that there is livestock, that there is a, a life given to that community. But he also is going to draw reference to the fact that at night, there is still that same life. Because on a hilltop, when it's dark, and there is any light given, that source of light can be seen from all around. I have never had a more clear picture of darkness, if that makes sense, with my eyes open than about seven years ago when my wife, Stacy, and our kids drove from Portland, Oregon to Minneapolis, Minnesota, where we were moving for ministry, and we decided to go through Yellowstone. We came in the far west entrance and left on the eastern entrance, exit in this case. And as we were driving out, it was about 10 o'clock at night, 9 30, 10 o'clock. There was nothing there. And I stopped in the middle of the road. There was no other vehicles around. There was no lights from the city. I shut, this is true, I, I shut my wife's armada off and rolled down the windows and we looked out and I actually got scared. It was a little freaky because that morning as we were driving, my wife had rolled down her window and was able to stick her hand out and touch a buffalo. That's how close it was to our vehicle. She put her hand on a bison. Tatonka, like <laughs> crazy. Some of you Kevin Costner fans know exactly what I just did there. I'm like, what are you doing? That thing's, that thing's bigger than the vehicle. You're crazy. And as he turned the lights off and rolled the windows down, we heard all kinds of noises that if you're from the city, you're used to sirens and gunshots and vehicles. Out there, it's howls and hoots and creepy things, right? I can handle gunshots and, and sirens. I can't handle animals. I got my own in my house to deal with, let alone the Yellowstone. But it was pitch black, and as I turned the armada back on, the headlights pierced the darkness and illuminated, and I guarantee you that anyone that had been standing around there, if there was any human life form left in Yellowstone besides us, would have been able to see through the darkness because of the light that we were putting off. So Jesus is saying, you are, you alone, active imperative, right now in this moment, the light of the world. 
And where light is introduced, it's indicative of darkness. And if you question whether or not you're living in darkness, I only ask you to turn on any news station for a moment. And you will see race wars. You will see religious wars. You will see political wars. You will see people being kidnapped. You will see beheaded. You will learn about all kinds of, uh, of false politics and inappropriate uh, politics and you will learn about countries that are looking at developing nuclear warheads so that we can go to a whole nuclear. Our world is literally in the middle of a change in this moment, a, mon a monumental change. Nebraska is in the middle of a monumental change. I actually had somebody ask me at the next service if we could stop at 12 o'clock to stream the live broadcast of Scott Frost. <laughs> no! We can't. We are in the middle of a monumental change. The climate of our community is changing. We live in the time of darkness. And we need to remember that we are called the light. When Jesus stresses, he is saying to you alone, active imperative, are right now the light in darkness. This should not go un unrepresented or misplaced. And then he gives this beautiful word picture. And then he talks, I love, I love how Jesus does this, verse 15. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. He basically says, what sense is there in that? I'm going to tell you what he's talking about, and I'm going to tell you what it means today. In culture, they would have had these jars that they would have filled up with olive oil. And when they were filled with olive oil, they would have put a cloth in there that would have been dipped in olive oil that would have been lit as a wick. And they would have then put that up to illuminate the house or to illuminate the city, right? He basically says it doesn't make any sense then to light this lamp or this lantern only to cover it up. That word hidden is the Greek word crypto. And it literally means to, to cover up or to conceal. And if I were to put it to you in the most simplistic terms that I can imagine today, what Jesus is saying is, we don't have time for cover-up Christians. You are the light of the world. We don't have time for secret agent Christians. I shouldn't go into your workplace and say, hey, do you know, we'll call him Tom. Do you know Tom? Yeah, I know Tom. Hey, Tom, Tom's a part of my church. He's a Christian. Your employer should not be shocked and awed and, 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 and like, like Tom, we talk about the same Tom, Tom? Like Tom, Tom? Tom's a Christian? Get out of here. And then Tom shouldn't come up to us and say, hey, guys, guys, I'm on secret mission. Shh. I don't want them to know. Like, I'm a Christian, but, but they can't know. It's special ops. There's no special ops. There's just ops. You are the light of the world. Brianne, my two-year-old, this is the first time she's able to conceptualize or understand Christmas. She was too young last year. She loves lights, loves Loves the lights. I've got a tactical flashlight that I use. I keep it in my truck and I use it to, I don't really have any purpose. It just looks really cool. <laughs> Brienne likes to play with my flashlight. She'll pull it out. And one of her favorite things to do is to get into a dark room, turn the flashlight on, and 
and her cheeks will glow like a, like a glow worm. And she thinks it's the funniest thing ever. I think it's the cutest thing ever. But it makes no sense to go into a dark room to turn a light on only to disguise it or cover it up because it loses its effectiveness. In fact, the only time that light is ever covered here on earth is during an eclipse, whether a partial or a total eclipse. On August 21st this last year, we got to witness that spectacle. Many people, many people in Blair were standing outside like it was a 3D theater with their glasses on. I was at Subway having lunch with Pastor Alex and we would go outside, periodically we would take turns sharing the glasses and looking up and you could see the moon making its way in front of the sun until it was fully and completely covered. But here's what I want you to know. Though there was something impeding the light, the light was still there. You see, that's what happens in our lives. We allow things to get in the way between us and the Son of Man. We allow things to impede the light and its effect on our lives. The light's still there, but we can't always see it because of the world in front of us. Remember I said we're myopic. Remember I said that even from my house, I don't always remember that oh, I, I can look out on my rooftop and see all of Missouri Valley, but my vision is impeded. I can't see the forest, the trees, the houses, those things in front of me. I forget what else is out there because my vision is impeded. The light is always there, but we allow the things of this world to impede our vision and affect our relationship. Well, what are those things in this world that are dark that get in the way of us and the sun? Fear. Fear is one of those things that gets in the way of us and living as children of the light. We're afraid of what people might think of us. We're afraid of our reputation. We're afraid that we might not have all the answers. It's easier to live as closet Christians, secret service Christians, because if they know we're Christians, they might ask me a question that I don't have an answer for, and I'll feel stupid. Or maybe it's our reputation. Maybe if they know now that I'm a follower of Jesus, they'll question all the things that I've done in my past, and I don't want to relive those. Those were hard enough the first time. Or maybe, maybe what's impeding the sun clearly affecting our lives is unconfessed sin. Guilt and shame that go with unconfessed sin. You see, sin thrives in darkness, but when light is involved, it has to be. Perish. Light reveals truth and exposes darkness. Maybe the reason that you can't clearly see the sun is because of religion. Because you were taught that there was a set of systematic approaches that you had to take to get it right. Whatever the case may be, there are things man-made in this dark world that we allow to come in between us and the Son of Man, which impede our vision and affects how we see things. Jesus says, no one, no one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. That just doesn't make any sense. No one intentionally will live in crypto 
or disguise or secret agent. He says, but instead, now here is an allegorical comparison. Instead, a lamp, lamppost, radiant light, is placed. Would you circle that word placed, that adjective placed? We're going to talk about that in just a moment. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. Two things we're going to talk about. The lamp stand and the house. The first thing that I want to talk about is the lamp stand. Notice Jesus' use of words and the order that he puts them in. He doesn't say the lamp was already there. He establishes that there was a process that took place. In other words, if you wanted light, you had to do so on purpose. You had to prepare in advance. You had to put in the work. You had to put some forethought into this. Culturally, when the sun was setting, what these people would do is they would go in their home and they would grab this jar. And they would bring this jar to the table and then they would go to wherever they kept the olive oil. They would grab the olive oil and they would put the amount of olive oil that they wanted in there for the night. They would go and they would grab a, a linen or a strip of cloth. They would soak it in the olive oil and they would set it in the jar, the container. They would light it and then they would elevate it on a lampstand so that it would expose the darkness. So that it would reveal light. I want you to think about the purpose behind this. When I went outside to put my lights up, this was not an I dream of genie moment. I did not just go like this and the lights were hung. I wish it were so, but it were not so. I had to go and get the lights. These are icicle lights, which means that every strand of brand new icicle lights, you've got to sit there and pull every one of them out and warm them up and try to get them to hang and so they don't bunch back up. And you've got to plug them all in to make sure that none of them wrap because if one part of the strand of lights is out, none of it works. It's ineffective. You've got to go and you've got to get the right amount of extension cords and you've got to get the clips for your gutters. You've got to get whatever it is that you're going to use to hang it with. Then you've got to set the ladder in place after you've come up with a plan of how you're going to light these and where you're going to hang them. And then you have to intentionally go up every step of the ladder of every rung and you've got to put in the clips and you get where I'm going with this. I didn't just go out there and throw lights on the house. There was a plan in place. We had to purchase the lights in advance. We had to get the clips in advance. We had to have the power source ready in advance. There was a lot of thought that went into this. We don't just happen to be light. We don't just happen to be children of light. We have to be deliberate and intentional about living as children of the light. Our faith doesn't just happen. We have to develop our faith and grow our faith through the dynamo pneuma, the power of the Holy Spirit. He will lead us. He will empower us. He will inspire us. He will instruct us. But there is human responsibility. There is an obligation for us to be deliberate and intentional about living in the light. You don't just wake up that morning and go about your business and look back on and say, I don't know, was I light today? Was I not light today? Instead, you get up and you pray your prayer before your feet hit the floor. Father, in my life, may I be light today. In my words, may I represent light today. In my actions, may I represent light today. As an employee, may I represent light today. And that doesn't mean that you have to go in there and proselytize and preach. They didn't hire you to be the company chaplain. 
They don't need you to go up on the lunchroom table and open your Bible and begin to preach and teach and call people out. That's not what they're asking you to do. But the greatest witness you can have, the greatest light that you can exhibit is your approach to your job. Are you just going through the motions Monday through Friday, doing the bare minimum to get by, just enough not to get fired? Or are you looking at this as an opportunity to demonstrate the faith that you have in Jesus and being a good steward of what God has given you and what he's entrusted you with? You see, the Bible says that when you work in Ephesians, work as unto the Lord. And when you work as unto the Lord, not as unto man, that is an act of worship. Worship means worthyship. And what you're saying when you worship is that God is worthy to be praised, to be set apart. So in other words, when you work, not as unto man, but as unto God, that is a form of worship or worthyship. You are not working for man, you're working for God. That should, if it hasn't already, affect your thinking and your approach to your job. And you shouldn't do it for the praise of people, but for the adoration of Adonai. He says, instead, there's a purpose. There's an allegorical comparison. Instead of hiding the light, it's placed on a lampstand where it gives light to everyone in the house. We're going to learn in just a moment, that this light is bigger than the house. But it starts in the house. What kind of a light, what kind of a light would I be if I came on Sunday and I was a, I was a Christian on Sunday? And I was a Christian around others and I put on my Christian smile, you know what I'm talking about? like you're in a two-faced commercial? You put on your best Christian smile and your best Sunday dress and you come in and you go through the motions. You want to represent, you want to emulate the light. You want the community at large to know that you're light, but what good is it if you go home and you go from this to this? And instead of looking for opportunities to present the light of Christ, you're looking for opportunities to complain. You're looking for opportunities to pick apart. And you're grouchy. What kind of witness is that? What kind of witness is it if in the community you're, you're, a, you're a Christian, but at home you, you hide it? I mean, I think it takes more work for you to be grouchy Monday through Saturday than it does for you to be happy on Sunday. And some of you just are grouchy on Sunday too. Stop it. Stop it. The light that we must emulate, the light that we must carry, is a light that begins at home. And it begins with how we live our lives. Our children are learning most from how they see us living than they ever are from the words that we use. Remember I said that Jesus was sitting there and his disciples were sitting at his feet as disciples. One of the words that I want to draw your attention to now, if you go right back to the beginning, he says, you are, you alone, active imperative, the light. That word light in the original Greek language is the word phos. It's also where we get the word photo or photograph. What Jesus is literally saying is that you are the image of me. 
You are the photographic image of me. And even in darkness, you have a quality phone like an iPhone. When you take a picture, the flash will go off and the flash will pierce the darkness. It will illuminate the night and it will allow you to capture an image and an image that is not photoshopped or altered, it captures the truth. And that word phos, the light, is the image of Christ that we are to literally be image bearers of Christ that expose the light in darkness to the truth of Christ. But it has to begin at home. One of the things that I've worked really hard at in my life is to show my children that who I am on Sunday is who I am Monday through Saturday. I don't want my kids to come into the, into the church and see me up here passionate and loud and obnoxious and impassioned and uh, full, of, full of whatever I'm full of and <laughs> go home and I promise you that the same kind of crazy you see right here, that's the same kind of crazy they witness every other day of the week. And my children have the right to ask me questions. My children have the right to call me out if I say something from here that I'm going to live different out there. One of the things that I've been criticized for most in the last 13 months since I've been here on staff at this church is that I'm too honest with you. That's a real thing. That's a real thing. And I've heard it more than once. I've heard it more than once that I'm too honest with you. Well, I'd rather be too honest with our community than rather trying to figure out what I did so I could live and hide it in darkness. If I just expose it to the light, you got nothing on me. I would rather live my life in the light to take all the guesswork out so that you can see what a life flawed and broken by sin looks like when it comes into an encounter with Jesus and it's changed forever. And as I grow more in my knowledge, more in my understanding, and more in my relationship with Jesus, I become more and more created in the likeness of his image. I represent that. I want you to have permission and freedom to do the same in your own life. Now that's not to say that every one of you should come up here and confess your unconfessed sins to all of us. That would be awkward and take a long time. It'd be hard. I know that. But you confess them to God. You confess them to your one another. You can find an accountability partner to confess it to. Stop living in darkness. Let the light of Christ expose the darkness so that you can best reflect the image of Jesus. All right, we're going to wrap this up. Verse 16. This is a commission. He moves from an allegorical comparison now to a commission. This is a call to action. In the same way, referring to no one lighting a lamp and hiding it under a basket, but instead putting it on a stand. In the same way, let. You're going to want to highlight that word let. That's an important word. Let your good deeds shine out for all to see. Two things. One, good deeds. Let's talk about good deeds for a moment. Oh, this can be a naughty idea in church. People want to argue this or say by works, not by action. Say by, you know, say by grace, not by works. Say by grace, not by works. Say by grace, not by works. That means I can go do what I want. I, I, you know, I'm saved by grace. And I hear people say, ah, oh, it's a good thing I'm saved by grace. Well, yeah, but would I know you were saved by grace by your actions? The two are synonymous with one another. They go hand in hand. You can't pull the grace card and not show the actions to it. 
James 2 says, look, y'all go ahead and tell me about your faith. Y'all go ahead and keep talking. I'm going to demonstrate my faith with my actions and how I live my life. Because faith without works is dead. No faith at all. We don't need lip service Christians. We can't hang on to the fact that we're just saved by grace. Yes, we celebrate that. We embrace that. We recognize that there's nothing short of Jesus Christ and total surrender to him that we can experience eternal life through. But as a byproduct, we have responsibilities for. We have a responsibility to live. To live as children in the light. He says, let. Let is free will. He didn't say you must or you will. But he says, look, I want you to let your light shine. Let your good deeds be an example. Are you letting Jesus Christ illuminate your life and pierce this darkness around you? Or have you become comfortable in darkness? You know what I mean? We've lived in our house about a year. And I can effectively get up out of bed and go to the restroom without the aid of any light in my house. I have a pretty good idea of where it's at and I can get there almost uninhibited. No problems. But put me in somebody else's house that I'm unfamiliar with and turn off the lights and let me go to the bathroom. Hey, let me, I'll tell you what. Why don't you come stay the night in my daughter Brianna and MJ's room tonight and then when you get up to go to the bathroom, try to make your way around the landmine of Barbies. <laughs> it would be a disaster. My point is that when you're somewhere long enough, going through the motions, you become comfortable with it. It becomes familiar. You don't put a lot of thought into it. When it comes to living as children of the light, as the son of man, we have got a responsibility and an obligation to let our light shine and to be incredibly intentional about it. He says, let your light shine. Let your good deeds shine out. Not inward, but out. For who to see? All. Notice the language that Jesus uses here. This isn't selective language. This isn't exclusive language. This isn't those that you're comfortable with. And this is really troublesome when you consider who the alls are of this world. When you turn on the television and you hear about Charles Manson who just passed away in prison, he is among the all. When you turn on the television and you hear about another beheading of an American that was just killed by ISIS, they are a part of the all. And I'm telling you, it's not easy. That's not comfortable for me to say that. It would be so much easier if I could say, Jesus, I promise I'll be a really good light bearer in this setting and in this context. But that's not what Jesus does. He establishes the groundwork up front. He says, let your light shine out for everyone, for all to see. This is the same language, this uncomfortable language language now that we're uncomfortable with is the same language that God uses when he says, for God so loved the world, all inclusive, that he gave his son. We are called to illuminate the light that God has given us as an image bearer, a photos, a photograph of Christ in how we live our lives with our words, with our finances. We are called to be an image bearer of Christ. With our relationships, we are called to be an image bearer of Christ. In our work, we're called to be an image bearer of Christ. In our community involvement, we are called to be an image bearer of Christ. In every area, not just where it's comfortable, but in all areas, we are called to let our good deeds shine out 
for all to see. So my question is this. If you and I were in the middle of Yellowstone National Park together and your life was the only light that people had to draw from to illuminate their surroundings, would they know that you were full of the light? Or have you been a special ops secret agent Christian keeping it under wraps? Have you let the light of God shine out of you to all? Have you cared for the least of these? Have you invited them to the table? Have you engaged them where they're at? He says, let your light shine out all, and here's why. So that who? Everyone will praise your heavenly Father. That word praise in the original language is where we get the word doxology. Doxology means to apply glory, to glorify. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. We are assigning value and giving glory to God for what only he is able to do. And I love this. I love this word picture when he says, when you shine out, it allows the glory of God to be evident, not the glory of Andrew, but the glory of God. A story that I refer to quite often when I'm preaching that I love is Peter outside the gate called Beautiful on his way to worship. There's a beggar at the gate. He's handicapped. I envision his head is down at the ground. And he's just shaking his jar, his can, asking for alms. Alms for the poor, alms for the poor. And Peter, as he's on his way to worship, he looks at the situation. Maybe he checks his pockets and he realizes, huh, I'm fresh out of cash today I don't know what I do know is that he steps into the man's situation and he gets down at eye level with him and he says look at me look at me and I even envision Peter taking his hand and lifting this man's chin up this man who is hung in shame this man who can't earn a living because he's unable to that just relies on the good graces of others so in his shame, his chin is lifted up and Peter says, gold and silver, I don't have any of that, but what I have, I give you. And in that moment, that man, his body is restored and he gets up and he runs into the temple to worship and people notice something is different. They look and they say, he was just outside the city gates. In fact, he's been there. He's been there for a long time and He's never been able to do this. What's different? What's new? What's unique? Peter doesn't say, look, because of who I am, because of my strength, because of my power, because of my abilities, I'm going to give this to you, but you go share it with everybody that I'm the one who did it. He says, I don't have gold and silver. What I have, which is the life and the light of Christ, I give you, and he freely gave it. It came out of him, and he spoke life into the situation, and this man in this moment is given life and a new charge in life, and he gets up, and he goes in, and he glorifies God. The way you live your life, friends, should lead others to understand that it is Christ alone. It should point to God. Everything should point back to God. Everything in your life, and I, you don't have to be obnoxious about it. You know what I mean. 
like those hyper-spiritual Christians where they, you, you compliment them. Hey, I like your lipstick. Oh, praise Jesus. The Lord gave me a job and that job enabled me to work and that work enabled me to draw a paycheck and that paycheck enabled me to go to my husband and get uh, an allowance and I went to the store and it was on sale and I got this lipstick and it fits my eyes. It just matches my blouse and my outfit perfectly. Praise God. It's to him alone who gets the glory. That's a little much. Just say thank you. But when people recognize that the way you live your life is infecting, I said that on purpose. I didn't say effect or affect, I said infect. That when we introduce Jesus to our surroundings, it's infectious. When we live our lives as children of the light, here it is again, coming full circle. This is a theme that the Lord has laid on our church, laid on my heart the last several weeks. Who knows but that your light, the way you live your life, might be the light that pierces somebody's darkness. Come on. Your life, the way you live as children of the light, might be the light that pierces somebody else's darkness. Come on. Somebody's living in darkness and they are just desperate for the light. They've allowed too many things of the world to come between the sun and them and it's, it, it's diminished their ability to see straight and your light may be the light that somebody sees that introduces them to faith in Jesus Christ and that encounter will change their life forever. Come on, church. Why am I talking about lights this year? Because it matters. Because lights matter. And so my challenge to you is simple. My challenge to you is rudimentary at best. As you drive through town today, as you go through the city streets tonight, as you look at the lights on the trees and in the houses that are around the community, as you are hanging lights, some of you that have been asked by your wife and you have been putting it off, stop putting it off. It's going to snow Wednesday. Get your backside out there today and you hang those lights. Guys, come on. I did it. Okay, Dane did it, but I helped him. (laughs) You look at those lights and you remember, you are, you alone are active imperative here now the light of the world and the way you live your life may be the light that pierces through somebody else's darkness and introduces them to Jesus it matters it matters and so if it matters we better pay attention and start living as children of the light Father that is my prayer that you would empower us inspire us equip us and encourage us to live as children of the light for your glory glorify your name father be lifted up i pray that each one of us as we think about these words that have been read today that have been spoken today that have been introduced today as we process these together lord my prayer is that we none of us will leave here today the same as we came in that this will infect our souls and affect the way we live our life. 